we have got Janie, and Janie is from WTC, and we partner with WTC. It's a theological college, and it's lovely to have you with us this morning, Janie. Thank you so much for coming to speak to us. Would you just like to tell those of us who, who are not familiar with WTC what it is and what your role is with WTC? Well, WTC, as Hazel said, is a theological college that Woody's partners with, and it's a rather unusual theological college in that it, the whole vision is to take theology, deep theology, back into the heart of the local church by equipping leaders and people in the church uh, with a really deep understanding of the Bible, our faith, the history of our faith, our doctrine, and all this sort of thing. So it's great. Um, and I am not in church leadership, I, and I'm not on the academic staff. I lead the operations team in WTC, but I've also been a student, and... Um, it's been absolutely transformational. I've been in church for 60 years and, um, you know, really enjoyed it, really been a follower of Christ. But when you, when you work with people who are spending a lot of time studying the depth, it's just like you walk into this room with all the lights switched on and the color switched on. It's absolutely fabulous. And you realize what a great Lord we follow. So I highly recommend it. Amazing. And we have a hub here in Bristol. Many people, even in this room, have done WTC. And so if you're interested in studying, then do come and chat to Janie afterwards. So Janie, thank you so much. Over to you. Lovely. Thanks so much. So uh, it is a real privilege to be speaking this morning as the second of this series on the Bible zoomed out, God's Word in five acts. And this morning we're going to be covering the Old Testament, you'll be glad to hear. But specifically what it means to be a covenant people so covenant is a foundational biblical theme, and it runs right through the Old Testament and the New Testament. And we take part in a covenant every time we take the Lord's Supper. So I want to just start by reading a little bit from Luke, what Jesus says to his disciples to prepare them before his crucifixion. So they're expecting one kind of savior, and he's preparing them before the next few traumatic days. And what he says to them is this. Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, saying, This is my body given for you. He took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. So in this meal, Jesus was using covenant language, as I say, to help his, under his disciples understand theologically and to put into context as they went through the days what was happening in the next few days. And I'll come back to that at the end of, of, of the talk this, this morning. So when we're thinking about the Old Testament, it isn't always that easy to understand. It was written over a period of 1,500 years, um, and some of it is poetry, some of it is prose. Um, it's all in different styles, and it's obviously written by many different authors. But um, just having a little bit of context about um, some of what was going on in the political and religious sphere about it makes it easier to understand. So I just want to do that. So... In the time of Abraham, which was about 2,000 years BC, there were major empires in the... Have we got the map up? Can we have the map up? Um, there were major empires in the south of the... We're talking about the ancient Near East, which is around, obviously, Canaan and, and present-day Israel. Um, and in, there was Egypt in the south, and there was Mesopotamia in the north, and they were really powerful empires. And then Canaan, the bit in the middle, which is now Israel and Jordan and Palestine, um, that was full of little tribes and little kings who in themselves weren't very important, but the position was incredibly important in Canaan because the big 
empires kept coming into it, and it was the land bridge between them. So whoever controlled Canaan controlled the trade routes, controlled the political routes, and that kind of thing. So it was a very important area of land. The next thing that is quite important is the religious context, and that was that every nation had their own gods, many of them. Uh, so you didn't just have one god, you had many, they were all through every part of life, and you worshipped them, and basically what you had to do was do the correct ritual to keep them on your side and make sure that they would be doing what you wanted them to do and that you would keep in favor with them and they wouldn't get angry with them. So, uh, and they were also geographically related. So you were the god of the Philistines, you were the gods of Egypt, you were the gods of uh, Assyria or whatever. So you were the gods of your bit of territory. And the most, and when, you had, uh, when you had a military victory, so if you beat the Philistines or, or the Egyptians beat somebody else, that was not because their army was better, it was because their gods were stronger. So the gods were really, really important, and everybody knew you had many of them, and that's what you had to keep, keep, um, you had to keep them happy. The third thing that's really helpful when you're reading the Old Testament is to understand that the, the key social unit was the family. The family was absolutely central. Um, your family defined who you were, who you were related to, so people would want to know who you related to, whose brother, whose sister, who is your father, because that meant they could place you in society. And everything was accessed through the family. Land, food, um, animals, if you were pastoralists, um, without your family, you were absolutely destitute. And people lived in these extended multi-generational families and households, and the pivotal person around whom everything was centered was the senior male. He was the patriarch. He was the one who had the final authority. He made the final decisions, and his word went. So he had certain privileges, but he also had binding responsibilities to provide for his household and also to redeem them and protect them. So if, for instance, if you read the book of Ruth, you'll remember that Naomi and Ruth, who came back to Bethlehem after becoming destitute, Naomi suddenly remembered that there might be a redeemer kinsman, a man to whom they can turn, who might be a way of helping them out of their destitution. So these are all concepts that are woven through the Old Testament, and, and if we understand a little bit more about how important they were in that time, it helps us to understand the Old Testament. Um, just one more thing about family. In this context, the oldest son, the firstborn son, was absolutely key because the firstborn son was the next patriarch. And he also had significant privileges. He would inherit twice as much as everybody else. But also from a young age, he had heavy responsibilities. In this context, women got access to everything through men, apart from a few exceptional cases. So daughters were under the authority of their fathers, then they got married, they were under the authority of their husbands or their husband's father. And that was just the way it was. I want to, and, and when you talk, when you think about the language, I'm saying this because when you think about the language of the Old Testament, it, it's sometimes really, it, it feels a bit jarring in our context. But one of the things that God is very gracious about is he engages with us where we are, and he engages in, in the structures and the social structures of where people were so that they can understand who he is. But then he does it with a little twist in the tail that shows them 
who, who he is and his nature. So the fact that God chose a family, a pastoral family in BC 2000, where they had this very patriarchal system, does not mean that that is God's preferred system. That just means that God was engaging with them at that time and in that place in a way that they understood. Now, in the ancient Near East, covenants were very widely used. They were a secular contractual agreement between two parties who made binding ritual promises. They, took, they did it through a ritual oding ceremony, and it was a sacred promise. They were very widely used. They could be made between individuals, tribes, or nations, and you could have covenants between people of the same uh, social status, people of the same political power, and those people would make agreements with each other. For instance, if you were a number of kings in Canaan, you were banding together in case Egypt or Mesopotamia came and invaded you, that would be a parity covenant of the same uh, standing between them. And they would refer to each other as my brother. That was the covenant language. Once you were in covenant, you were my brother. Or there were also covenants between people of very different social and political standing, and they were suzerainty vassal covenants. And the person who was very, very powerful would be offering protection, and he would come in to fight for the people of very, or the nation of much less power. And the language of those unequal covenants was that the the nation of lesser power or the person of lesser power would refer to the, the other person as my lord or my father, and he would refer to the lesser party as my son or my servant. So you can see that this language runs right through the Old Testament and the New Testament. And in this context where families defined everything, a covenant was a way of including people who were not blood relatives into your family and making them as important to you and making as binding promises to them as you had responsibility for your own people. So having slightly set the scene, I just want now to look at the covenant with Abraham that God made. So as I think you talked about last time, you maybe talked about the first 12 chapters of Genesis with the creation and then uh, humanity deciding that they didn't want to stay in harmony with God. They'd rather go their own way, which fractured all those relationships and brought in violence and murder and, conf and confusion. And God was deeply distressed and he used a flood to kind of wipe that out and kind of start again, as it were. And at the end of the flood, he actually made a covenant with Noah and with all of creation and put the sign of the rainbow in the sky. And then just following on from that, he decided to bring in a plan of redemption. God started his plan of redemption that again is the main story of the whole Bible. And he did that by choosing a family because the family was the unit that people related to. And in Genesis chapter 12, the Lord said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household and go to a land which I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. So it was a really close identification with his people. All the people on the earth will be blessed through you. So that was his calling, and Abraham, in his great faith, believed him. 
And God was going to do that by expanding the family of Abraham to as many as the grains of sand. That's what he promised. Now, fast forward several years, quite a number of years, and Abraham still believed God, but nothing had changed. He didn't have any descendants, and so he put in place a, a sort of human alternative. He'd chosen one of his faithful servants and made him his heir so that he could be the patriarch after him. And so God says to Abraham again, do not be afraid, Abraham. This is in Genesis 15. I am your shield and your very great reward. And Abram said, but what can you give me? I haven't got an heir from my body. So I've, I've made this servant my heir. And God said, no, it'll be somebody from your bloodline that will be the heir. And Abraham believed the Lord, but he wasn't sure. And he said in verse 8 of chapter 15 of Genesis, Oh, sovereign Lord, how can I know that this is going to happen? And then God said to him, Bring me a heifer, bring me a goat, bring me a dove, bring me a pigeon. And then Abraham absolutely knew that it was God was going to keep his promise because what God was saying to Abraham when he said that was, Let's make a covenant. Let's make a binding promise. So Abraham knew what to do. He brought these animals, these sacrificial animals. You cut them in half. He cut them in half. And he laid them out in the two halves uh, so that you leave a passageway in between the two. Now, one of the things about covenants, and we do have a number of written covenants from the period, was that as well as laying out the obligations of each party, they stipulated the blessings that would attain to the, to the junior party if they kept the covenant promises and they laid out also the curses that would happen to that person if they broke the covenant. So as part of the normal covenant procedure between unequal people, the lesser party would walk through the halved animals, this channel through the middle, which was probably fairly messy, and he would say, right, may, the thing, may what's happened to these animals happen to me if I break my promise, if I break my covenant commitments. So God was making a promise with Abraham, as I said, in a way that he really understood what it meant. But God did it in a way which started to show Abraham who God was. And as part of this ceremony, God made Abraham go into a really deep sleep and it says in verse 17, when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking brazier with a blazing torch appeared and passed through the pieces. So the twist in the tale for this covenant was that it wasn't Abraham, the lesser person, who passed through the pieces. It was God who passed through the pieces. And what God was saying was that I will take the fall, I will take the punishment for the promises that are broken. God knew he wouldn't break the promises, but he was going to take it upon himself if the promises were broken. So as we go through the Old Testament, there are a number of other covenants which are explained here. There's, there's obviously the covenant at Mount Sinai, when the Hebrews and other people who came out of Egypt with them were pretty much a rabble. They'd been slaves for 400 years, and God gave them what we call the, the Ten Commandments and a whole, whole lot of other laws. And what God was doing there was he was forming them into a nation of people, his people, and he was teaching them about who he was. And if you remember, in the ancient Near East, everybody had many, many gods. You, you should. You had to have a god for every occasion. 
but the first, covenant, the first one of the Ten Commandments is, I am the Lord your God, and you will worship me only. So the most important thing that he was teaching the Hebrews at that point through that covenant was that he is the God. There are no other gods but him. So he was using this form to teach them who he was, teach them about his nature. And then there are other covenants with David, and uh, there are other covenants, and it comes through uh, to the covenant in Jeremiah 31, where Jeremiah, at a time when the Israelites, who repeatedly broke their covenant promises, and therefore suffered some of the curses using covenant language that came with breaking the covenants, eventually going into exile, uh, which was the worst kind of breach because they were taken away from the land that God had given them. But Jeremiah, in that context, prophesied that God would make a new covenant, one in which he enabled his people to keep the commitments by putting in a new heart, a heart of flesh rather than a heart of stone. So let's come back to where we started at the Last Supper and when Jesus was talking to his disciples, who as Hebrew men would all have known the Hebrew scriptures really well and would have known all about these covenants and the, uh, all, all this, the um, enactments of them and what it all meant, the significance. And it's, it's striking that as Jesus prepares his disciples for what's happening in the next few days, he doesn't major on forgiveness of sins, what he talks about is the renewal of the covenant. And as he breaks the bread, what he's evoking is Genesis 15. He's the broken body, bodies of the ritual sacrificial animals. And he's, he picks up the glass of wine. He's saying, this is my blood of the new covenant. This is, and I am going to take on myself through the crucifixion, the curse of the covenant that Abraham and all his descendants should have taken because of the broken promises that they had. So what does it mean for us to be a covenant people? As you remember, covenant was one of the ways in which you could bring people into your family that weren't members of your family. And Paul says in Ephesians, if I can turn to it, hang on. Paul says this, He says, remember, he's writing to the Gentiles in Ephesus. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. So as covenant people, believers of Christ are part of his family part of the inheritance. We are, he has the same obligations. He gives himself the same obligations to us as he does to, to Jesus. We are heirs with Christ. And at the same time, he, we are given the mandate. We, are, we inherit all the covenant promises that were given throughout the Old Testament. And we are given the mandate of revealing Christ and his kingdom to the rest of the nations. We're given the mandate of being blessed to be a blessing that he called Abraham to do. And we're given through the Holy Spirit the power to have our hearts transformed to enable us to keep the covenant and to be God's witness in this world and to be his body in this world. So it's a huge privilege. It's a huge responsibility. And he gives us the means as he has always given us to fulfill the covenant that he's calling us to be part of.
Janie, thank you so much. So, um, so amazing to delve into some of the history and some of our, our story, that that is who we are. We are people covenanted to God in relationship with him because of Jesus. Um, we're going to spend the rest of our service um, in worship, so I'm going to invite the, the band to come forward. So why don't you stand and let's, um, let's worship Jesus.